So I am pretty excited about um, Wednesday starting back up. And I was contemplating what, here's my communion thing from last week that, or the other week that wouldn't open all the way. I don't know why that's still there. Um, contemplating what we wanted to do. And um, I was kind of thinking about something and unsure, and then a couple of other people kind of asked me simultaneously to do it. Um, are you guys familiar with the uh, Truth Project? It's a 10-week video course, and usually I don't, I kind of avoid doing video series just because, I don't know, it's not the same. But, um, but it's a really good apologetic series, and, um, you know, I was thinking about it, a couple of people asked to do it, and it's kind of confirmation, so, um, so we are going to do that starting on Wednesday. Jen, are you trying to tell me something back there? Yes, they are. That's why I was going like this to see who was talking to me. Um, thank you. This is why it's good to have staff. Thank you, Jen. Yeah, so excited to get going on that. It's going to be a great time. Um, there are workbooks that go along with it, and they're not required, but if you want to do a little extra work, um, you can see, Jen, we have 15 of them on hand, and if we run out, we can um, go ahead and order some more. So um, looking forward to seeing you guys Wednesday at 7. Let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, we... Um, Lord, we come before you this morning as people who, who need you, Lord. We come before you as a people who are, who are desperate for your touch, for your, for your sustenance in our lives, Lord. And we pray that as we open your word this morning, as we delve into the inspired word, that you would, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord you would lift us up, that you would encourage us, Lord, that you would strengthen us in your, in your word. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, two weeks ago, we started in Acts chapter 16. And um, as we move on, we left off in verse uh, 17. But I want to backtrack just a little bit and kind of talk about some of the stuff that led up to the passage that we're going into this morning. So we kind of get some of, the, some of the context. We understand what's going on. So it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 16, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. So last time we found this young woman who was demon-possessed. Now, this is one of those kind of weird topics that we like to shy away from a little bit, isn't it? You know, we don't want to seem like those crazy Christians talking about demons and demon possession and all that. Next thing you know, we're going to be waving flags and dancing in the aisles. and We don't want that, do we? Um, you know, it is a weird topic a little bit. But we need to understand this, that there is a very real spiritual world 
Right? There are things going on all around us that we are unable to detect with our senses. Right? There are things going on that we're unable to see and hear and touch and feel. Scripture is explicitly clear on that. And on occasion, the, the spiritual realm and the physical realm, they intersect. And, you know, we, there are times when, a, when a, a, a demon, a demonic entity, a fallen angel, will enter into a living physical being and take control of that person. Right? We see that in the New Testament a number of times. There are a number of people who, who were possessed with an, with an unclean spirit. And we see that sometimes in Scripture, animals can be possessed as well, right? Luke chapter 5, remember Jesus casts out the demon and they're, they're crying and begging and Jesus casts them into a herd of swine. You know, I myself have had a, a couple of dogs that I suspect may have been demon-possessed. And um, I don't know. But we do see this in a number of times in the New Testament, right? Demon possession. You know, it's a real thing. It's legitimate, right? And they can do supernatural things, right? There's this crazy unseen world all around us. And I, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I know we talked about it last time. But I want to make three points real quick before we move on. First is this. A spirit-filled Christian cannot be demon-possessed. If you are a child of God, and you have the Holy Spirit of the living God residing within you, right? He isn't going to be roommates with Satan, right? He's not going to let some demon squat in the spare bedroom of your soul, right? Demons are real, and they can harass believers, right? He can, he can poke you with the proverbial pitchfork, right? They can try to influence you, but they can't control you and possess you from the inside. Second, these demons and demonic activities, spiritual forces, they're real, and we need to be aware of that, but we shouldn't be fearful. Scripture teaches that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, right? 1 John 4, 4. Thirdly, as believers, as we see in this passage here, we have authority over them through the power and the name of Jesus Christ, the demons have to obey us. And we're going to see later on that some people try to take authority over demons in their own power, and that doesn't work. But we saw the seven sons of Sceva, and we'll see that later. But, but genuine believers walking in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit have authority over these dark forces. And that's what we see here. Right? This girl, she's following Paul and Silas around, and, and she's, she's yelling out. I imagine she's kind of shrieking. Right? These, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Right? And they're following this group around, annoying them. And, and finally, Paul, he's had enough. And remember, it says that he being greatly annoyed, he just finally said, I can't take it anymore. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And again, we see that this, this spirit-filled believer, he had the authority, and he exercised this demon. He cast out this demon. And this is where we pick up the text this morning, starting in verse 19. But when her owners saw 
that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now notice this. These guys are making a lot of money off of this poor girl's affliction. Right? Her, her suffering was their business. It was their livelihood. It was their gain. And so when Paul casts out this unclean spirit, he broke the piggy bank, didn't he? He tore up their winning lottery ticket. Right? He, he broke their moneymaker. And all of their, all of their hopes of, of wealth were, were shattered at this point. Right? And to quote the great philosopher of our day, Puff Daddy, it's all about the Benjamins, baby. I see three of you guys, four, got it. Other guys are looking at me like, are you, what's the matter with you, Pastor? Anyway, I, I'm moving on. Right? These guys were all about what they could get. Some of you guys are still Googling, Who's, who is P. Diddy? Asking Alexa. They're all about what they could get, what they could gain from this little demon-possessed girl. And they're upset when, when, they're, when, they're, when their livelihood is messed up. So they grab Paul and Silas, and, and, they, and they start a riot. And it's like the, the city of, of Philippi, all of a sudden it's taken over by the local chapter of Antifa. They're burning tires in the street, they're breaking windows, they're stealing Reeboks. Right? The whole town is ablaze. And they drag Paul and his crew out to the public market and they, and they bring him where the local authorities are holding court. And they say, these guys, they're, they're disturbing our city. The New Living Translation says, and the whole city is in an uproar. Teaching customs that are unlawful for us as Romans to practice. Now, I don't know if that's true or not that the whole city was in an uproar. This certain area was for sure. But they certainly weren't teaching things that were illegal for the Romans to practice at this point, right? This is taking place around 51 AD, and Christianity wasn't banned by Nero until about 64 AD. And so what they were doing wasn't illegal. Now, it's interesting. It wasn't illegal to practice Christianity in Rome until it was. Right? Until things changed. There are presently 52 countries in the 21st century where it is illegal to own a Bible. There are 52 countries where you can go to prison for owning a copy of the Holy Scriptures. Now, Christianity isn't illegal here in the U.S., of course, until it is. Right? It can happen. It has happened many times in many places throughout history. Why, why would we think that we're going to be any different? Right? Scripture says that in the last days, it's going to grow increasingly difficult to practice your faith freely. 
Yeah, and we're still here on Sunday mornings gathering, but it's certainly, we can hear the, hear the, the voices in the background, can't we? We can feel that, that the tide is beginning to shift against us. You know, even today, there are, there are several churches in Canada and the U.S. where the pastors are, are going to court. A pastor's been arrested. You know, a pastor is, all this stuff is happening, and, and, and it's because they're, they're breaking the COVID rules, you know, and holding church. But essentially, they are being taken to court because they believe that the power of the gospel, the impact of the gospel, is more important than the risks. And because of that, they are being taken to court. And, and, and there's definitely a, a, a shift, a fundamental shift in our culture today where we're seeing more and more people are, are opposed to the things of God. They're opposed to Christianity. They're opposed to, to the gospel message contained in scriptures. And it says in verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they, drew, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. See how quickly the mob turned on them? See how quickly the tide shifted against them? It reminds me of, of in the Gospels. Remember on Palm Sunday, people are, what are they crying out? Hosanna, Hosanna. A week later, what are they crying out? Crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Right? The tide can shift very quickly. And I don't want to seem like a catastrophist, and I'm not making predictions and saying that's what's going to happen, but I'm saying that very clearly that's what could happen. And should it happen, we need to be prepared and be ready. So the mob grabs them. It strips them down, and, and they beat them with wooden rods. There's no trial. This is all illegally done here, and we're going to see that that's very important later on in the chapter. So they beat them with rods, and they throw them into prison. Now, the Roman dungeons, the Roman prisons were, were very rough places. And typically, there were, there were three areas in the Roman prisons. There was what was called the, the, the communoria, or the outer area, the kind of general area, and sometimes that was an above-ground area where they would have just like, like holding areas. There was the intoria, where we obviously get the word interior, right? It was the inside of the prison. And then there was a, a third level. It was called the tulanium. And, and this was the, the, like, the max area. This was where condemned prisoners were sent. This is where people were sent to die, or they were sent while they were waiting execution. And this is where Paul was placed because they were told to keep them safe. And now, this, this second layer of the prison, there would have been no, no sewers to speak of. It was, it was foul. And very often these areas were, were below the public markets and they had a, a manhole that you accessed to get down in there and, and, and human waste was left in there, animal waste dropped in. It was a, a vile area. And in there, they had shackles. And if you were a bad prisoner, a high-risk prisoner, they had very short shackles. They would chain you to the wall, 
and you couldn't really move, you couldn't, you were, you were secure. If you were a lower risk prisoner, they had longer shackles. And maybe you could sit down, you could move around, you could scratch yourself if you needed to. Maybe you could lay down partially. But if you were a really bad prisoner, they put you in stocks. Now, most of us, our image of stocks comes from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? When the guy's in there with his head and his feet and... Right, that's, that's those European stocks, that's not what was going on here. They were, they were bound by their legs, but what they would do is they would open the prisoner's legs as wide as they could. Imagine trying to do the splits and have somebody yanking your legs open. And they would secure you in that position and leave you there for days or even weeks at a time. Right, this is the position that we find Paul and Silas, these servants of God, in the foulest imaginable conditions in great pain, in the midst of torture. And look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I want you to see that. In the midst of abject suffering, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of being unfairly, unjustly punished, we find them singing and praising the Lord in song. That we see that nothing could stop them from worshiping the Lord. And I love this. I, I love the attitude that they had. I mean, what's the other option? They could have been wallowing in misery and self-pity. You know, Woe is me. I am undone. Right? They, they could have been singing, you know, nobody knows the trouble I've seen and rattling their cups on the bars. Right? This is a, this is a, she got it, thank you. Belinda, I need you in here. <laughs> right? This is a bad situation. This is a, a horrific situation. And they had a choice. Right? They, could, they could whine and cry about it. And frankly, that seems like a valid option at this point, doesn't it? I mean, I, I probably would have been. Or they could praise God despite their circumstances. They could praise God despite their present hardships. And it reminds me of Job a little bit. Remember in the opening chapters of, of the book of Job, he loses his flocks. His house falls down. It kills his sons and daughters. Later on, he finds himself sitting around a campfire scraping his boils with a piece of broken glass. And his wife comes up and says, you know, why don't you just curse God and die? He's not in a good place. Remember what he says in Job chapter 1, verse 21? He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And then look what he says. In the midst of the most extreme hard times that you can imagine, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job said, blessed be your name, no matter what happens. Nothing was stopping these men from worshiping Jesus. I look at that, and I have to ask myself, what stops me from worshiping Jesus? What stops you from worshiping Jesus? What circumstances of life take our eyes off of Jesus? And how is that working out for you? And suddenly, verse 26, there was a great earthquake, 
so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they're praising the Lord in prison. And suddenly, everything starts to shake. And I don't know if it was an isolated occurrence there in the prison or if it was a regional earthquake. I don't know if the Lord was enjoying their worship and he's tapping his foot and things started to shake. But there was an earthquake. And all the doors of the prison pop open. And all of their chains fall off. Just to be clear, this is more than just an earthquake. You know, we from the Northwest, from the West Coast, we, we've experienced our fair share of earthquakes, haven't we? I've been in a few good-sized ones. I remember, it'll actually, I looked up the date, and next Sunday, it'll be exactly 20 years since that February 28th earthquake in 2001. You guys remember that earthquake? It was a, a good-sized earthquake, wasn't it? When that earthquake occurred, I, um, I had been framing houses for a couple years, and I had just become a lead framer. And um, I was up on top of a, it was the second house that I'd ever framed as, as the lead framer. And I was up on top of the very top of an extension ladder, the top of a second story. And all of a sudden, everything starts shaking. And my first thought is that my guys are shaking the ladder. Because we did that stuff to each other all the time. We'd shake the ladder, you know, and we're always messing around with each other, nailing people's nail bags to the floor and stuff. And so I thought, uh, ha, ha, and I looked down and there's nobody there. My second thought is, oh, no. This is my second house, and it's fallen down. I didn't build it right. And then the house, I looked around. This is up in Snoqualmie Ridge, kind of by some power lines. And I see the power lines are swaying, and the trees are swaying. And I realized what it was. I realized it was an earthquake. And it was scary. But you know what? In the midst of that earthquake, in the midst of all the trees swaying and everything, you know what? None of the doors popped open. None of the padlocks came open. None of the chains fell off. Right? We see in Acts chapter 16, this is more than a mere earthquake. There, there's something spiritual going on here, something supernatural going on. Now, in those days, Roman guards, Roman jailers, they were responsible for their prisoners. So if you were a Roman jailer and your, and your keep, your prisoner, he was sentenced to 10 years in the salt mines and he escaped, you had to complete that sentence. You had to finish off his sentence in the salt mines. Or if your prisoner was condemned to be executed and he escaped, you had to bear his sentence. You would be executed. And so when the doors fling open, the guard here, he, he, he thinks they're all gone. So he pulls out his sword and he's getting ready to, to fall on his own sword. He's ready to, to finish it off so Rome doesn't do it for him. And right as he's about to fall on his sword, Paul calls out and he says, hey, don't kill yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, verse 29. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. 
Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I want to stop here for a couple minutes and, and look at these verses. Now, I'm sure that, that none of us have ever felt like this. But some people, when life happens, right, when hard times come, when things are unfair, sometimes we shut down, don't we? We can get bitter. and We can get angry. We can get mad at the world. We can get mad at God. You know, and we might not even articulate it, but in our hearts, and our minds, we're saying, you know, why did you allow this to happen, Lord? Don't you even love me? Don't you even care about me? Don't you see me down here suffering, God? You know, and not us, of course, but some people behave like that. I do all the time. And Paul could have easily done this, right? He could have said, look, I'm your servant. I've given up everything. I've written books of the Bible. I'm a missionary. Why, why is this happening to me? I'm here in this filthy, stinking hole in the ground. I'm beaten. I'm cold. I'm hungry. God, this isn't fair. But here's what we need to understand. We serve a God who is bigger than our circumstances. We serve a God who is bigger than the things that we're struggling with. And that's not to say that he's unaware. That's not to say that he doesn't see or that he doesn't care. But sometimes God is working on something bigger than our own lives. Sometimes we and our circumstances and our situations are playing a small role in God's larger plan. And sometimes God allows things to happen in our lives that we don't always understand because they serve a bigger purpose. And this may shock a lot of you, but our personal comfort isn't God's primary concern. I know that shocks a lot of you, but it's true. I remember once I was driving, and I was outside of Cancun driving up from Belize, and I saw this sign. And on this sign, it's a big billboard, and there's this lady, and she's in a beach chair, and she's reading a book, and, and she's sipping what looked like a pina colada, and, and the caption below the sign said, how life is supposed to be. And I thought, you know, that is such a ridiculous statement. Life is supposed to be everyone sipping drinks on the beach. If everyone's purpose is lounging and relaxing, who's going to make the pina coladas? Who's going to clean the beach? Who's going to print the books that she's reading? Who's going to make the chairs? We, we, we think that life is all about us. We think that life is all about our comfort. We think that life is all about making us happy. And that's just not true, especially for believers. Our lives are not our own. We are bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Our whole purpose in this life is to do whatever the Spirit leads us to do. I, I think we talked about this scene a while back. But remember in Forrest Gump? Remember Forrest Gump? He's there and he's in boot camp. And the drill sergeant, he's there in Forrest Gump's face, and he's yelling at him. And he says, Gump, what's your sole purpose in this army? Remember what he says? To do whatever you tell me to do, drill sergeant. And the drill sergeant says, Gump, you're a genius. 
That is the most outstanding answer I have ever heard. You must have an IQ of 160. You are gifted, Private Gump. You're going to be a general someday. We are enlisted in the army of the Lord. Our job, our sole purpose is to do whatever he tells us to do. We don't have to understand why. It's okay. We just have to obey. Remember Alfred Lord Tennyson in his famous poem, Charge of the Light Brigade. Remember he says, ours not to reason why. Ours is but to do and die. Not or die. To do and die. Right? We don't have to understand the Lord's plans. Ours is to live and die at his command. Ours is to play a small role in his divine plan and to trust him with the rest. Now, Paul might not have known at that moment why he was in prison. He might have wondered why he was cast into prison so many times over the years. He might have wondered why he suffered so many hardships, why he was shipwrecked and beaten and, and, all, and all these things happened to him. But you know what? Some of our most beloved epistles, Paul wrote in prison. In fact, they have a name. They're called the prison epistles, right? He wrote them while he was in prison. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, they're all written while Paul was incarcerated in Rome. And there are probably other epistles that were written during his other stints in jail. You know, God had a plan. God had a purpose for Paul exactly where he was. But I want to note Paul's attitude of praise. And sometimes it's the little things that we do that really make an impact on the lives of other people. I shared this story earlier, but when Denise's dad, Tim, he, he died of lung cancer. And when he was in the last stages of his cancer, Denise and I moved up from Belize for a little while, and I would kind of go back and forth, and she stayed and was caring for him. And when I was up, I would drive him back and forth to his doctor's appointments. And Tim was very actively not a Christian. He'd grown up Catholic, and, and he married a non-Catholic girl, and he got excommunicated, you know, and he was very opposed to, to the church. He didn't want anything to do with it. And we, we'd shared our faith with him a number of times, you know, and I, I don't need that. I don't need it. And I remember this one day we were driving back from, from a doctor's appointment, and, and we were just talking about salvation a little bit in church, and, um, and Tim, Tim said something to the effect of this. He said, I've always, I've always tried to live by the golden rule. I've always tried to do unto others as I would have them do unto me. And I, I know this is hard to imagine, but I was just being a smart aleck a little bit. And I, and I said, yeah, Jesus was a pretty smart guy, wasn't he? And, and I wasn't thinking anything of it. I wasn't trying to, to share my faith. I was just kind of poking the bear a little bit, really, as I'm prone to do from time to time. I was just, I was just making a little joke. And, and, and he said, what? And I said, yeah, Jesus said that in Matthew 7, 12. He said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, and I looked over and I noticed that, that, his, that his eyes welled up and, and he began to cry a little bit. And this is a man who didn't do that kind of thing. Right? And, and he said something about, you know, I guess, I guess the church is still in me. 
And it was interesting, that little, that little barb, that little conversation, it started this, this change of heart that ended up with him giving his life to the Lord like a week before he passed away. Just that, that simple statement. You know, we don't know what our actions and attitudes are saying to the people around us. I, um, I have a friend who was a missionary in Africa for a long time. His name was Robbie Douglas. And um, he was actually supposed to come up here and do our, our uh, men's breakfast about a year ago, right before the uh, 14 days to flatten the curve. So, um, yeah. And, um, and he was telling me one day about being in Uganda. And he was in northern Uganda, and his primary ministry was ministering to refugees from Sudan. And so they would come down, and they lived in a big refugee camp. And he was telling me one day there was a... Um, him and his wife had done the laundry, and it was out there on the laundry lines, and it was drying, and, 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 a, and a, a, a squall came in, and it began to pour down rain. So him and his wife ran out there and, and picked the laundry off the line and brought it back in the house. And that event made a, a, a dramatic impact on a group of these Muslim ladies who were there. You know, they, they came up later, and they're talking to his wife, and they said, look, we, we, our, our men would never do that. They would never stoop so low to do woman's work. And they saw this love that, that Robbie displayed for his wife, and they gave their lives to the Lord because of that. That simple act of, like, who among us wouldn't do that? Who wouldn't run out and give their wife a hand? But, but that attitude, it reflected the love of Christ to the degree that they, on the spot, gave their lives to the Lord. Acts 16, this whole prison was impacted by Paul and Silas's attitude of praise, and especially the guard we see here. Then, verse 30, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And look at verse 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. It's that simple. It's not good deeds. It's not works. It's not doing enough. It's not keeping the rule set. It's simple faith in Jesus Christ that brings about salvation. And I want to point this out. It's not just belief that saves. It's not just faith that saves. It's belief in Jesus that saves. It's faith in Christ that saves. It's the object of our faith that's important. Our, our belief isn't what saves us. It's the object of our belief that saves us. It's the one who we put our faith in that saves us. Belief in Christ alone will bring about salvation. He's the only one. He's the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15. He's the one who has prophesied throughout the whole of the Old Testament. He's the one who fulfilled those prophecies in the New Testament. He's, he's Jesus. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us, God in the flesh, and he alone can save. And as they spoke the word of the Lord to him, verse 32, and all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. 
Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now notice this, right? They're, they're in solitary, right? They're, they're locked down. They've been severely beaten. They're, they're in stocks. And the next scene, we find them, the head jailer, right, the warden of the prison, washing their wounds and inviting them into his home and feeding them. And they shared the word, and it says, all who heard the message believed. Each person individually believed the message, and they were baptized there that night. And the whole house rejoiced because of their newfound faith in Jesus. Now, a couple hours before, Paul's suffering, and he's probably wondering why he was going through all that. He probably didn't understand what was going on. But we see, and I'm sure he understood at this point, that God had a bigger plan. That he was working the salvation of this man and his whole family. And I think that that's an important lesson for us. We need to remember when we're suffering, when we're, when we're in the midst of trials and tribulations and hard times, we need to remember to ask, what is the Lord doing? And how does my attitude in the midst of this struggle reflect Jesus? But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. So the magistrates, they say, look, these guys have been whipped. They've been beaten. They spent the night in the dungeon. I think they've learned their lesson. Let's let them go. And they send word. You know, go ahead and leave town, guys. Now, most of us, after spending a night in jail, and they say, go ahead and leave, what will you do? I'm out. Let's roll. On that same trip that I was talking about, on the way up to Cancun, I was pulled over, and I was extorted by this police officer. And the little truck that I was driving was actually missing the front license plate. So initially, I thought that's why he pulled me over. And when he pulled me over, he, um, he gave me a ticket because I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Now, if you know anything about Mexico, that's a joke. Nobody wears a seatbelt in Mexico, right? And, and, I, and I speak a little bit of Spanish, but at that point, I, I pretended that I didn't speak any Spanish. I, I, I'm just going gonna to play dumb and see if he'll let me go. And unfortunately, he, he kind of fumbled through a little Spanglish, and he said, look, here's the deal. I can arrest you and take you down to the police station, and you're going to have to pay a $120 fine, and it's going to take you half the day. I said, or you can give me $60, and I'll fill out the paperwork for you. And I... I struggle a little bit with idiocy. And um, anyway, I went on to negotiate my way down to $40. And then he let me go. He let me on my way. Now, on the way back, about a week later, we're driving, and we come up to the same checkpoint. And we're a little ways away still, and it's kind of staged out. There's like a little quarter-mile area. And lo and behold, who do I see out there? That same police officer. Now, I still didn't have a license plate, and there was a bus in front of me. So I kind of sped up a little bit, and I got real close to the bus so he couldn't see that I wasn't driving. I didn't have a license plate. 
And so he sees me and he smiles and he waves me over. And I'm like, oh, I don't even have any money left. I spent it all. And he waves me over and he says, you know, you're going kind of fast. You need to slow down. And I wasn't really going very fast. But you know what? I didn't argue with him. I said, gracias, señor. And went on my way. He just let me go. You know, and, and that's kind of the attitude that most of us have, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't argue with the officer when he releases us. Not Paul. Not what Paul does. Look at verse 37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison. And now they want to throw us out secretly? No. Let them come, come themselves and take us out. Paul's kind of a funny guy, isn't he? You look at that and say, Paul, what's, what, what are you thinking? Paul, why are you stirring up trouble? Paul, why are you needlessly kicking the hornet's nest? He says, look, we're Romans. We, we have certain rights that others don't have. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago, how, how Roman citizens were by far the minority in the Roman Empire. And, and they held special position. If you were to be, become a Roman citizen, you either had to be born into it, if your parents were Roman citizens, you were a born Roman citizen, or you could purchase your Roman citizenship if you had money, or you could serve in the military, and after you retired, you became a Roman citizen. But people who were born Roman citizens, they were sort of the, the upper tier of, of, of Romans. And, and so Paul says, look, we were born citizens. And you threw us into jail. You beat us illegally. There was no trial. There was no hearing. Now, under Roman law, if a Roman citizen was, was improperly beaten and imprisoned, the people who did that were, were um, at risk of, of being put to death themselves. That was a capital offense. So Paul says, look, you want us to slip away quietly? No way. You guys come on down here yourselves and release us. When the police reported these words to the magistrates, or the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So when they went out of prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers... They encouraged them and departed. So Paul here, I don't think that he's just being prideful. I don't think he's just being arrogant. I don't think that he's just trying to be the proverbial Karen. Right? I want to speak to the manager. Sorry, Karen. That, was, that, wasn't, that wasn't our Karen that I was talking about there. It was just general Karen's. I think that Paul had a reason. I think his thoughts were on protecting believers, protecting this young church here in Philippi. I think Paul is saying this to the magistrates. He says, look, you guys arrested us illegally. You beat us. And we're willing to let it slide. But if you mess with our people, there's going to be trouble. You mess with our people, and I might just come back and file a report. Right? We see him here utilizing Roman law to his advantage. I think he was also saying, look, 
Let it be known that we're Romans in case anybody else wants to come and mess with us while we're doing the work of the gospel here. And I think there's a good lesson for us there, that, that it's okay for us as believers to, to leverage the law, to utilize the law to our advantage when we're doing the work of the ministry. So Paul, he leaves this new infant church here. And, and this church is interesting, right? The first person in the church, remember, was Lydia. And she's this rich businesswoman. She was a seller of purple garments. Most likely the second person is this unnamed, ex-demon-possessed slave girl. The third person in the church is this Roman jailer and his household. And, and here's what I see. I see this very diverse group here, right? Look, the gospel is bigger than our social classes. The gospel is bigger than economic backgrounds. The gospel is bigger than our racial divides. The gospel message is bigger than the prejudices that we so often harbor in our hearts. The gospel message, it brings people who have nothing else in common together. We can have nothing in common except Jesus. And that's enough, right? That makes us family. And, and that's what I love about the gospel. It's not selective. Anyone who believes on Jesus will be saved. From the best to the worst. From the richest to the poorest. From the blackest to the whitest. From the smartest to the dumbest. The weakest to the strongest. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's the glory of the gospel, isn't it? That's the power of the gospel message, church. Paul says, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the good news. Right? We were lost in our sin. We were trapped in bondage to sin. We were hopeless. We were helpless. We were lost. But Jesus Christ went to the cross and he shed his own blood, and he died in our place so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could have a relationship with him, so we could find new life in him. You know, if you're not a believer, whether you're watching online or you're here today, if you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, if you've never repented and been forgiven of your sins, don't delay. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Call on Jesus. Confess your sins. Repent and believe now. Ask him to come into your life and to forgive you and to make you a new creation and be born again. Friends, that's the, that's the beauty of the gospel. It's not about who we were about who he is and what he wants us to become and who we can become in him. And that's glorious, isn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we just, we stand in awe of the cross. We stand in awe of your grace and your mercy, Lord. 
and of your sovereignty, the way you, you weave all things together for good. As we talked about before, you take the broken down, burn up things in our life, Lord. You give us joy through our mourning and, and beauty for ashes, Lord. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your sovereignty and your goodness and, and your love for each one of us, Lord. And Father, we pray that when we find ourselves in the midst of struggle and hard times and tribulations, Lord, that we would trust in you and that we would be good witnesses, Lord, that we would reflect you in the midst of our difficulties. We ask that in your name.